Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Welcome to the second episode of the Econ Talk Book Club on the Theory of Moral Sentiments with Dan Klein of George Mason University. Our first episode was an overview of key ideas in the book. Today's podcast is focused on part one of the book. Go to econtalk.org slash bookclub.html to find an online version of the book, how to buy the book if you want a hard copy, and other resources. And as an introduction to today's podcast, I should mention, and this was a Dan's suggestion, I think it's an excellent suggestion, that this is going to be a very different uh, type of podcast than we usually have. We're going to try to work systematically through uh, a work of, of, uh, of greatness that's it has all kinds of implications for how people thought and behaved and uh, how we think. And so Dan suggested you might listen to it a little bit differently. As he put it, you might want to adjust your notion of propriety, to use some of Adam Smith's language. So um, we'll see how this goes. This is our first time doing anything like this, and uh, I'm very excited about it. Dan, welcome welcome back. Thank you, Russ. Glad to be here as always. So I read part one, and I found it – I just for those of you who are going to be reading it, maybe haven't read it yet, it's uh, – it starts off a little bit slow and picks up speed for me. I found it much more interesting as it as it proceeded, although all of it's very interesting. Uh, but parts of it are, are quite challenging. The language is lively in spots, but other times a little uh, 18th century, we might call it. And um, But I enjoyed it overall. Uh, Dan, why don't you get us started? Okay. Um, well... I think right off we should mention that in the very first sentence, Smith posits this yearning, urge, interest, and sympathy right off. He says, however selfish, I'm sorry, how selfish soever man may be supposed, there are evidently some principles in his nature which interest him in the fortunes of others and render their happiness necessary to him, though he derives nothing from it except the pleasure of seeing it. Um, so right off the bat, he's positing sort of sociability, concern for others, um, shared experience, shared sympathy with others. Um, maybe I should say shared sentiment, um, which perhaps he viewed as uh, different than perhaps Hobbes or Mandeville or Rousseau. Um, Smith does not try to explain this sociability, except in the sense that he explains everything by a providential author of nature, a god, which isn't, in a sense, really an explanation. Um, but So he just posits that and moves forward. He takes it for granted that we as the reader, by the way, accept it. One thing that struck me at reading this for the first time carefully, and much of it for the first time at all, is how much of it is uh, state assumption, presumption that, that the world works this way. That there isn't the incredible richness of examples from the real world that's in the wealth of nations. There are many examples, uh, but most of them are just casual examples, things that would appeal to our common sense in, in making his claims plausible. Yes. 
Um, and he does expect us to take that as acceptable and given. Um, so this notion of sympathy, I think, deserves a little bit of remark right off. Um, I think of it as mutually coordinated sentiment, that my sentiment and your sentiment um, kind of converge, are in common, and almost as though the sentiment exists between us, neither yours nor mine, but ours, almost like the beat of a, of a song. Uh, if we're keeping time or beating time together, which is one of his um, common synchronous or musical metaphors. Um, so, so, so this notion of coordinated sentiment almost puts the sentiment between us. Okay, that's one reason it's different. It's not atomistic at all, his view of man. It's not like, oh, my sentiment and your sentiment. It's kind of like it becomes our sentiment. And then, of course, that grows outward in all the social interactions and I think his whole vision of really a, a liberal civilization. Um, there are a number of ways which he expresses this sense of mutual coordination of sentiment. And um, many of them, as I've said, are, are musical or synchronous. Uh, he speaks of harmony quite a lot, uh, beating, keeping time together, being in tune, um, and, and so on. Another metaphor he uses a lot is entering into, like we enter into each other's feelings, a metaphor of sort of, I suppose, entering into your home or you entering into my home, which again would create a common experience, a kind of sharedness. Um, he also speaks of going along with, again, a kind of mutual coordination. So I think sympathy is, is basically a mutual coordination of sentiment. Um, I might here remark on um, sentiment versus passion, okay, because he also speaks of passion. And I think perhaps you can see sentiment and passion as two aspects of emotion, with, um, I think, passion being a more active sense of emotion. A passion actually stirs you to do, to act, and to do something as a moral agent, as a doer. Uh, whereas a sentiment is a more passive, or at least it can be just a more passive uh, aspect of, of emotion. And the sympathy, sometimes it gets translated as empathy. It's not necessarily, sympathy is not necessarily a wholehearted endorsement and concern um, for somebody. It's, it's, and it can be that you are sympathetic with aspects of that person's action, feelings, views of the world. Um, so you enter into pieces of it. So he uses sympathy in, 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 a, in sort of a broad way. Um, and it depends a lot on imagination. He makes that clear early on. Um, you have to imagine what the situation is of the person you're sympathizing with. Uh, you have to imagine what their motives are. You have to put yourself in their position. So imagination, I think, is, is very central in all this. And it all quickly, from the very beginning, uh, becomes very intangible, which I think is one reason why it's harder to read this book than Wealth of Nations. Um, it's much more tangible in the Wealth of Nations, what he's talking about, much more concrete. Um, he quickly talks about needing to interpret other people's situations, and uh, so he immediately starts hinting at the importance of local knowledge and, the, and, and, and implicitly, at least, the limitations of, of local knowledge. Um, so he um, basically says, you know, that we um, look 
to sympathize with each other. We look for others to sympathize with us. At the same time, he very quickly points out that um, we don't, we shouldn't expect people to um, enter too deeply into our sentiments and, or our situation if we're the person principally affected. Um, if we're sort of telling somebody about our day or our our, our troubles, um, he says it always uh, affects you, you know, the person concerned, much more than anyone who you can hope to sympathize with you. And modulating this, you know, sympathy or what you expect others uh, to, to to feel is is a very important dimension from the outset. I was struck as a <clears throat> if we think about Smith as a as an economist which is obviously only part of his repertoire. But in modern economics, uh, Gary Becker is probably the economist most associated with bringing emotion, altruism, which would be one way of translating beneficence, uh, into the standard framework of economic thinking, the caring about others, the economics of the family, Becker wrote uh, his treatise on. And um, I was struck reading the book how – how much Smith argues emotion weighs on our well-being as opposed to our material su- success or failure. Oh, yes. So there's an enormous emphasis on a person's happiness, not depending on X1 and X2, which is the <laughs> textbook version of happiness that our utility depends on our consumption of goods – but overwhelmingly here, depending on how we are viewed by others and how we view ourselves, which, Absolutely. which is undoubtedly true, uh, an incredibly important part of our, of our humanity. And he really gets deeply into that, uh, so deep that occasionally one is lost. Uh, there's almost a labyrinthine wandering around of, of and, and repetitive. A couple of times I felt like I was lost in a – in a maze where he's constantly looking at the different combinations and possibilities for one's uh, perception of others, their perception of you. It's really, uh, it forces you to think very deeply about where your ultimate satisfactions come from. Absolutely. And I think the, the theory of moral sentiments so strongly um, asserts or affirms the idea that it's principally the moral aspect of our existence um, that matters to us. Um, there's a number of things, including in passages in part one. Uh, in one point, he speaks of as long as you're in good health, out of debt, and have a clear conscience, yeah. almost nothing else. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's you, it. That's if, top of the line. If, if you've got good health, out of debt, and clear conscience. Now, good health and out of debt does depend on material, certainly. It's a very low standard uh, by modern standards, right? And I was struck, of course, of our – in time. we're living in times where there's a lot of people who aren't out of debt. Uh, and that was part of the problems we're in. But uh, that was a uh, – that was a fascinating statement, right? Th- yeah. That's it. That's it. Just yeah. Be- he says people pursue and they imagine that other things are going to make them a lot happier. Um, and in particular, it's not really even the material uh, – goals, but the attention, the sense of importance. Yeah. But all that he sort of uh, e- e- even downplays, right? Um, although in a way, he comes back and says it's good that nature put this in us because that leads us to go off and produce and strive and yeah. increase the means for people being born and being sustained. 
Um, I mean, uh, so in that larger sense, you also get this feeling that, um, you know, he thinks it's better to have been born than not to have been born. Absolutely. And so the multiplication of the species, just in that very raw sense, is behind, very far behind everything. Uh, but there's another passage, just while we're on this, uh, in this section where he says, um, compared with the contempt of mankind, all other external e evils are easily supported. So, so you can be poor, you know, you, bad health, uh, even bad health, right, and all that. But uh, compared to sort of this moral, bad moral situation, um, and not, yeah, not just moral in, in the modern sense of the word, just. The contempt of mankind could come from you acting immorally, obviously, but it could come from perception, yeah. all kinds of negative perceptions that he talks about at great length. And uh, uh, it's a fascinating idea, right? It's a deep, deep thought. Yeah, and the idea that um, economics is all about wealth maximization. Right. And, I mean, it's such a it's so out of step with this 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 work. Um. Yeah, so he. I'm. I'm kind of when I when you come back to me, Russ, and I'm rolling through. I'm kind of going along a page by page set of notes here, because um, I do think I guess our job is to some extent the sort of exegesis of what's mm -hmm. what we think is significant. Just rolling through. Um, Don't call it just rolling through. <laughs> rolling through. Go ahead. <laughs> um, so this whole issue of modulation is there, and he says that you know um, one thing we try to learn to do is is to modulate our sentiments and our um, calls to other, to, to adjust in proper degree or depth. Um, and he sees that being becoming. Um, I thought, I saw that as one of the most provocative and interesting themes of the first part. This idea of, har it's a harmony idea, right? Mm -hmm. It's this idea that, that if you are overly, say, grief-stricken, publicly grief-stricken, or overly exuberant about your success, you will reduce the sympathy you receive from others. I think there's a deep truth to that, although at the same time I was struck by how 18th century that was and, and its concept of what is of what is proper or, or of propriety. Uh, in our world, often we're encouraged to be emotive and to you know get out your grief, express yourself, your exuberance. But I think he is, even though we have a different attitude toward uh, propriety, he, the idea of harmony with the feelings of others is is deeply true. That a per, and that in particular, I was struck by the fact that that people who seem to be overly exuberant in joy or overly grief stricken, if we as the impartial spectator don't feel it merits that response, it for, they forfeit a lot of our uh, sympathies mm -hmm. in both directions. I just thought that was extremely. Um, that deeply insightful and, and true in our times. Mm -hmm. um, and we'll, we'll, there's more on that, which we're coming okay, to. Sorry, go ahead. Um, not at all. Um, I think it's worth noting that um, early on, on page 17, he speaks, he, he connects all this matter of sentiment also to opinions. And he very naturally extends it to opinions about things, which is much more of an intellectual matter. But Aesthetics. It, yeah, but uh, but includes aesthetics. Yes, but I think he also would mean opinions about social matters, and you know, if you want to take it into a political direction uh, about politics. Um, so he he again wants us is concerned about having harmony there, and so I think it's very natural to think about his project 
being, hey, part of what I need to do as Adam Smith is get people's opinions in the right focal point so we can coordinate on them up and down, remember, through all those different sources of moral approval. Um, remember when I said that in the fourth source, sort of the grand concatenation of society, the great machine, as he might call it, um, we need to understand how things happen. And I suggested that um, the Wealth of Nations is part of an effort to get people to see the unseen, you know, how markets work pretty well, how government interventions often don't, and what goes wrong with government. Um, and so all that can be seen as trying to get people's opinions and notions about, say, policy uh, together so that we can be in harmony about, about what are proper opinions and then have harmony in that. And when, you know, like I just mentioned while we were warming up, my dad and my stepmom were with me this weekend and they're, they're, they're way into the Obama phenomenon. And, you know, I don't mean Obama, Bush, whatever this isn't about, but it's like, it's, you actually see it's a very important part of people's lives, everyday people's lives. I mean, politics uh, is a big part of where they find meaning and how they see uh, connecting up to things. Um, and there, you know, you have all these opinions over dinner. It's like, well, you know, I don't think that, but you know, you know, I don't want to start, you know, having disharmony, yeah, disharmonious dinner, conversation yeah. and everything else and feeling, but, um, but it all, it all relates, you know, I don't, I have to disagree with you a little bit there and I'll give you a chance later to defend it. But I was struck by the lack of any reference in this material to political views uh, so much of it was related to the stuff on aesthetics. I found fascinating. You know, anybody who's ever tried to get somebody to love a movie that mm-hmm. um, and finds out that they don't love the movie is that's very disharmonious sometimes. Mm-hmm. Or a symphony, or a poem, or a, you recommend a novel and your your spouse or your best friend doesn't like it, and you're you're crushed uh, or shocked, or you can be angry even. And I think I'm not sure Smith is is willing to concede that last point. Um, but I was struck by how day-to-day these concerns are that Smith deals with. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, there's a lot of death in the book. There's a lot of mm. – he, ta- he talks numerous times about people who who dropped dead or killed, murdered. There's a lot more death in 1759 than there is day-to-day in our, than there is in our life. So people coping with that level of grief of early death and, of course, levels of success, which were – much more modest in his day. It was harder for people to climb the economic ladder in, in 1759 in England, um, mm-hmm. Scotland. Uh, anyway, so I, I'm going to challenge you on that. Maybe we'll come back and talk about that. I, I didn't well, get much <clears throat> feeling about yeah, the no, harmony I, of political I'm, views. I'm, I'm jumping. No, I'm jumping there. Uh, but but the book does go there, as we mentioned in the first. It does go into some politics. And even in this first part, remember – he does talk about, I think it's in the page 60s, um, the different roads to uh, rank and distinction. And, um, <clears throat> you know, some that he describes are much more of a political nature. He has a lot to say about politicians. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> None of it favorable he's not talking, so far. <laughs> right. In his examples about people's opinions and feelings, he's not talking about how they feel towards politicians. Yeah. But he does say things, you know, the politics does yeah, certainly crop up. And let me, let me back off what I said a little bit. He, he certainly is extremely interested in what we would call in our time uh, the celebrity phenomenon. 
Oh, yes. Uh, whether they're politicians or rock stars, which he isn't referencing, but are certainly what he writes about politicians would be relevant. Yes. Carry on. Um, I think there's, it's important to make a distinction that he makes. Uh, I'm looking at thing on page 18. It starts, um, sentiment towards an action proceeds both from the cause or motive of the actor or agent as well as from its effect or consequences. And um, the aspect having to do with motives and causes, he, he speaks of in terms of propriety and impropriety. So when he talks of propriety and impropriety, at least here, um, it's kind of referring to the motive, what the guy was thinking. The actor. Yes. Whereas merit and demerit include um, consequences, whether we actually consider it meritorious. Um, and there again, you know, you quickly get into stuff which suggests things about local knowledge because motives are so hard and so mixed to know. Um, uh, th you know, it's one reason you so much often have to go on merit, right? Mm -hmm. um, and systems might, you know, just kind of focus on merit, which in some ways seems unfair as he gets into later especially when chance is playing a role. That's in part two. Um, yeah, we'll get to that. Um, but uh, I think it relates to local knowledge problems. Um, so we admire people who, who well modulate um, their, their sentiments uh, when they interact. We often uh, really find them very acute, he says, in the way they gracefully uh, handle those things. Um, that's a source of admiration, he says. We admire their acuteness. And in speaking of this, and, and, in, and in having explained some of the sort of utility of modulating it, he says, though, that the utility is an afterthought. He says that our first liking or admiration stems from this acuteness, from this rightness, okay, from this properness. And this is a big theme throughout the book that while it, utility, uh, think you can think of some kind of social utility, um, plays an important role in, in the evolution of our notions, our moral notions. They're not what originally affects us, okay? And so again, he, he sees that whatever we think is actually useful, good in terms of utility, and including social utility, some kind of aggregate, wealth, you know, common welfare, we kind of have to build a notion of rightness and put that across and understand it so that we can then work from a sort of direct sense of propriety, okay, in our moral reactions, um, which correspond then to that, we hope, wise understanding of what will be socially useful. Do you understand what I'm saying? I don't. Try that again. Um, <clears throat> throughout the book, I mean... Uh, he he is setting up um, sympathy and these moral notions of propriety as our kind of original, he often says our original source or impulse um, or, or guide. Um, but it's important that um, what we're consulting there, some sense of rightness, ultimately be wise in terms of the overall uh, consequences of this guide, okay? Think of an actual guide who's going to frown or smile 
on certain things. He's sort of saying we create a notion of this guide, even like a face, even if it's imaginary. Uh, and we, and it's the frown, it's the immediate sort of frown or smile as we would expect such judgment to be rendered by this guide as we understand it, that really kind of moves us morally um, and can move us passionately. Um, and we hope that the guide is a wise guide, you know, that corresponds to things that will actually be socially useful on, uh, for, for the whole. Mm-hmm. Um, so this, this, this point, this theme of his, that utility, as he puts it, is an afterthought, is kind of behind all this. And, and you have to look ultimately to some sort of evolutionary mechanism to get convergence behind um, people's moral notions, this guide, okay, which becomes the spectator, the impartial spectator, and social utility. Let me say, I think I understand. Let me, let me say, you're saying that you could be in harmony, say, with your neighbor's uh, sentiment and reaction to some event. So let me say, oh, that's the wrong, actually, that's the wrong direction. Your neighbor could, could moderate his or her reaction to some event to be in concert with yours. Since you can't feel it as strongly, the fact that, that the neighbor masks her grief at, the, at a loss, recognize that you won't be so sympathetic because uh, it's not your loss, is something that we admire at times mm-hmm. and, we, and, mm-hmm. we, and we applaud. But of course, there are lots of things you could synchronize like that that would be evil. Yes. And so there's in the background some idea perhaps that either in a Hayekian evolutionary sense, the norms that emerge are useful. Yes. Or there's some sort of divine or other reason to believe that these norms are good. But the mere harmony by itself is somewhat ambiguous. Yes. Is that, is that a good way to put it? It is. And it's that that harmony ought to – he's prompting us, and he's, I think he's suggesting that us as – beings who seek enlightenment and wisdom, um, we are always prompted to sort of check at a higher level whether our harmonies and our and what we've become accustomed to, our practices, our guides, are actually worth improving. Okay? And so then we have to think about the broader picture, the fuller understanding of the consequences, consider people who are criticizing our guide, mm-hmm. right, to improve it. Um, and so that could be that very process, social process of both intellectual and moral, could be the process, could be the evolutionary's cultural right. evolution. Sure. Um, but but at the end of the day, sort of in our in the way we act at any given day or week, we're sort of playing off some 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 crystallized, as it were, guide of sort of what we're well, where we're at now. Where right. we're at now, right? Yeah, because I mean, the book's very much. Man as, as he is. This is what we are. We, we are, I mean, at various points he steps back, particularly in part two, and asks, you know, well, is this a good thing or a bad thing that this is the way people feel about this, that, or the other? And he's constantly, not constantly, but occasionally, I would say, looking at what we would call in modern economics the incentive effects. If this is how people respond to this kind of uh, behavior, does it encourage the behavior, reduce the behavior? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? And... Uh, you know, he, I find there's a tension in there between how much he wants to comment on it versus just kind of 
make an observation and walk away. Every once in a while, I feel that the real man emerges from the behind the the mask of the author and says, you know, this is really gruesome or this is really delightful, and it's. Uh, but a lot of times he's going to step back. He's not going to come forward. He's just going to yeah. give you his impressions. Yeah, I mean his observations, <clears throat> not his impressions. Yeah, my feeling is that he's expressing a great deal his own um, sensibilities. Mm-hmm. That's maybe a good word for yeah. this. That, that we're sort of co- trying to coordinate our sensibilities and then improve and refine our sensibilities. Um, and I think I really feel that you ought to read his work as, to a great exp- extent, an expression of his sensibilities. So if someone says, well, what does he mean by propriety? What does propriety actually consist of? It's like, well, it's what's in those entire works. Yeah. I mean, it's the whole sense you get of what he thinks is you know, worthy and unworthy. H- having said that, just, just as a, one, one more digression, occasionally as I was reading it, I found myself slipping into a Dickens novel or a Jane Austen novel where – I suddenly be an interesting thing to to read the this book alongside, say, uh, Sense and Sensibility or Dickens' Our Mutual Friend, which is all about um, how people feel about rich people, how people feel not just rich people and what they act and how they get rich, but how do people feel about the upper classes? How do f- people feel about yeah. the nobility, and then how does the nobility feel about them? And you know, we read those novels. Um, I recommend both of those. Uh, we re- read those novels through our modern eyes, and reading it through Smith's eyes really changes mm. uh, the way yeah. the way you read them because it was a different game. Yeah. The 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 scope for expression for women, say, the scope for expression for a talented man, even. Is very clear to Smith that its scope was was highly constrained, and um, our time's more open. It's a different time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what you say, just speaking of Jane Austen and how you have to go to the novels uh, in in the nineteenth century to find this discussion. Um, it's more of a digression uh, on top of yours. Um, you know, again, Smith is like telling you what his sensibility he's expressing his sensibilities about sort of the big picture uh what this large sense of sensibilities ought to be that we ought to try to coordinate on so that our opinions better cohere and we get policy right and i think okay but um i think that quickly after smith's time especially as you get political economy as a separate discipline or enterprise you, your economists very much lose that sense of expressing this broad, here are my large sensibilities about what the good life is. And I think that's actually a great tragedy. I think that um, the trub- the tr- part of the trouble with liberalism and its eventual decline, um, you really see it decline at the end of the 18th century. Um, but I think, um, in a sense, the seeds of the problem go back to this in some ways, separation earlier on, um, <clears throat> where economists less, you, you know, reserve are much more reserved about that. And they want to be, I'm the scientist as the economist. I'm not, you know, not trying to express, I'm not trying to exhort. Right. Um, that's a whole big thing, yeah. but, um, back to the book. Okay. That's great. Um, 
So in in the page twenties is I think the first time he starts speaking of partial and even impartial, um, and he says um, that um, when we are very partial to a um, matter, it's it's harder for us to modulate properly, um, to to have that gracefulness, um, and also to um, see a larger picture if it's somebody who we're partial to, who is affected. You know, if it's our brother who's involved in a dispute, we're very partial, right? And I just think it's interesting uh, how he uses, uh, starts to use the terms partial and impartial, um, where, you know, we have our normal understandings of what those words mean, but if you actually examine them closely, it's kind of like part versus the whole. And in a way, impartial means... You know, not that I don't care about either disputant, but I'm sort of seeing the whole, or I have a more of a sense of the whole, which I think um, is a useful uh, vocabulary. I prefer it, for example, to objective and subjective, mm-hmm. you know, rather than saying being being subjective, I'm partial. I, I have, uh, and, and I prefer to say that someone is more impartial when they have a greater sense, a greater sense of the whole. And then they give their judgments and sensibilities about that whole, understanding that they're just somebody um, who, um, you know, maybe doesn't have a, a great sense of the whole, but this is where he's coming from. Um, there's a, something on page 22, which I think is really worth noting, um, he's talking about this harmony of sentiment, and he says, uh, these two sentiments, however, may, it is evident, have such a correspondence with one another as is sufficient for the harmony of society. So, harmony is not some bliss, it's not some perfect you know, convergence. The next sentence reads, though they will never be, though, I'm sorry, though, yeah, though they will never be unisons, they may, they may be concords, and this is all that is wanted or required. That's a deep thought. It's a musical thought, by the way. For those who are, uh, who are musical, a unison is the two notes that are the same. Concord is a reference, to, I assume he was referring to, to harmony, where two notes sound good together, like a C and a G. Two Cs are unison, but two G, C and a G, even though it's not perfectly in coordination with one another, it's still pleasant sounding. That's right. So it's not perfection, but, but um, just a sense of this harmony is all that is wanted or required. Um, which uh, speaks to, I think, his sort of comparativeness. It's mm-hmm. like, hey, it's, it's one focal point that works. Um, uh, we don't seem to have one that has a better sense of harmony or a stronger unison. Um, and, and, and so, although harmony sounds so blissful and perfect, it wasn't really a sense of perfect convergence, perfect competition, you know, perfect markets, none of that. Um, and so um, I think Smith is very much in tune with the, the remaining imperfections and disharmonies even that, um, you know, are, are naturally going to be part of society. Um, on 220, I'm sorry, on 24 is the first time he uses the expression, I think it's the first time, impartial spectator. And he's just referring to a person who's spectating and happens to be impartial. But he's sort of laying stakes for uh, the deeper um, concept, uh, construct of the impartial spectator, uh, which doesn't actually emerge yet. I don't think it comes up yet until part three. Um, he uses at least, uh, I noticed, at least three different uh, languages to describe 
this observer. Mm. He's got, I think, indifferent at one point. He does use indifferent at least once. And there's maybe even a third one. I'm, I may not find it quickly, but but it's interesting. You know, there is such a thing as elegant variation. It's a writing technique. <laughs> right. Where rather than repeat the same phrase, um, you look for a, a phrase of the same meaning. And Deirdre McCloskey inveighs against that because yeah. arguing that it, it distorts meaning potentially in the reader uh, who, is must, who then assumes it must have some separate significance. But I, my presumption is that indifferent and impartial are the same in Smith's mind. At least, yeah, as these are occurring. Um, I think that's right. Uh, there is elegant, some elegant variations, and um, how intentional, whether Deirdre should fault him for that or whether <laughs> we should fault him for that or not, um, I don't think it's a simple matter. Perish the thought. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, I, do, I do believe, I'm a subscriber to the view that Smith was a very sly fellow, a very sly writer, um, and um, not that all of his ambiguities are deliberate and he's got some like master resolution in the back of his mind by any means. But I do think that um, in some cases he um, didn't want particularly to clarify um, certain things. Um, and even perhaps wanted to cloak certain things and certain things about that, 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 that like about God and stuff, I think are, are remain very ambiguous. Um, and surely, uh, you know, deliberately to some extent. So there is something on pages two, 23 to 25 I want to speak to. This is, I think, a very interesting distinction between two sets of virtues, um, the amiable virtues mm-hmm. and the respectable virtues. Um, he says, the softer, the gentle, the amiable virtues, the virtues of candid, condensa- candid condescension and indulgent humanity are found upon the one, the great, the awful and respectable, the virtues of self-denial, of self-government, of that command of the passions which subjects all the movements of our nature to what our own dignity and honor and the propriety of our own conduct require, take their origin from the other. Okay, so there's there's the amiable, which are gentle, um, indulgent, compassionate, and then there are the respectable, the great um, self-denial, self-government, he associates it with dignity and honor. Yeah, this is the start of chapter five. And that's right. section one. Yes, part one. Um, or, yeah, perhaps it's part section one. Part one, section one. Okay, yeah. okay. Sorry. Um, I think this is a quite useful uh, and profound and elemental distinction here. Um, I like to think of the self as as using this distinction as, as – I've modeled it as a spiral in something I once wrote, um, where on the one side of the spiral – uh, you you um, have this sort of multiplication of the self, this division, dividing of the self, this conflict within the self, um, and that's where the gentle and amiable and compassionate virtues are more significant. And then down around the bottom of the spiral, it goes back up towards the next level of the onion, right? Because it's a spiral going down to the middle. And in the middle of this is the soul, okay? Kind of like, so it's kind of like the disintegration of the self. And that's where you need compassion and gentleness and amiableness to 
indulgence um, to appreciate the person's trouble and the trouble of keeping yourself together and, you know, your different impulses and challenges in life. But then at the bottom of the spiral, it starts going up, and that's the reintegration of, okay, so I have these different impulses, I have these different forces, I have these problems in life, how am I going to reintegrate these into a, into a person that uh, gives them their just due and, you know, manages them properly? He speaks of self-government and self-denial, right? Putting your, you know, I shouldn't smoke this much or what have you. Um, and so that's the reintegration. That's the awful and respectable. He's awful in an old sense. Yeah, Maybe awesome good. is what we yeah. might say. Um, so then you go up to like a new level, which is kind of like a new, better level of self. But then again, you know, life never ends. <laughs> and there's new challenges and you would be bored just, just getting in a routine, in a groove of just being that you know, controlled. Yeah, that controlled, person. integrated person. You want to reach out and expand, and, and, and so you come again to the disintegrating factors of the self, where you have new multiplicities and conflicts, and again, call for compassion, and you keep going around and round. And I don't think it ever ends. I think I think Smith is a very dialectical thinker, and it's all about the whole onion, as it were, the whole spiral, if you will. Um, and these two sides of the spiral or sets of virtues correspond perfectly to the kinds of virtues that are called for in interaction. Let's say your house burns down, Russ. Um, I'm your friend or neighbor and, you know, we're interacting and you're obviously in a mess and grieving and confused. What do I do? Blah, blah, blah. You're, you're obviously sort of disintegrating, you know, because of this event. Um, you're troubled, you're upset, you're not sure what to do next, what you're going to do about this and that, put things back together, should I go on with that project, I lost all my notes or what have you. Um, you might have to kind of lop off parts of yourself, right, certain, certain projects or something, or, you know, someone getting a divorce or what have you. Um, and so for, for me, the virtues that are needed are these amiable virtues to sort of reach into your troubles and to sympathize with you. And for you, kind of, you know, bringing me in, you need to call more on the um, respectable virtues so that it's not like just this huge mass of grief. That you can't relate to. That fully I can never relate yeah. to fully or know about and, and so on. And so it goes, and he says this, he's, it goes to the two sides of, of an interaction between two people and, the, and again, that modulation of sympathy. He also relates as beautifully, this is on page 25, um, to the Christian precept of um, loving our neighbors as we love ourselves. And he kind of says, okay, but um, you got to look at that from both sides. In one sense, you know, from your sense, you're getting divorced or you're getting um, your house burned down. You've got some troubles. We pick a different person than me just because yeah, I'm right. happily Somebody married right. and my house is still standing. Yeah, yeah. Jim's Jim. Got, right, Jim, yeah, sure. Go ahead. And, um, <laughs> right, and um, Jim has to, to some extent, I'm, I'm Jim's neighbor, he has to understand that um, he should love me, that I, he should be, he shouldn't impose upon me so much to expect me to grieve so deeply and upset, have me upset my life and, you know, help him to some, ex you know, great extent. And so he should, he, 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 he uh, yeah. Um, but at the same time, he's Smith saying, but, you know, we should also love ourselves only as much as we love our neighbor. I guess that's the one, that's, that's the part that would apply to Jim. 
Jim, like, all right, let me, let me. I didn't let, understand this. Yeah, let, 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 me, let, let me read the passage. Okay, and by the ahead. way, it's, it's a Jewish uh, tradition as well. It comes out of, uh, I think it's in Leviticus, uh, but I think it's interesting. Smith attributes it to the great law of Christianity. It says, as to love our neighbor as we love ourselves is the great law of Christianity. So it is the great precept of nature to love ourselves only as we love our neighbor, or it comes to the same thing as our neighbor is capable of loving us. I had no idea what he's talking about. I have a question mark next to that passage. So try again. Okay. <laughs> so Jim is house burned down, getting divorced or something. I'm Jim's neighbor. The first way of looking at the precept is me as Jim's neighbor should try to love Jim as much as I love myself and I should try to enter into his troubles and grief and assist him. Feel his pain. Okay, that's the one way. But the other part which Smith wants to highlight here is but Jim needs to understand that he should love himself only as much as he loves me. So he should modulate all his grief and his you know importune calls to me realizing that, you know, he shouldn't love himself so much more than he loves me. Right, we always put the, the, the stress on the direction that it's easy to love yourself, right? So I always say, try to love your, your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Right. Uh, you're suggesting that, that you shouldn't love yourself much more than you love your neighbor, which would be a very, high, right. a very interesting way to think about it. The modulations are on both, both ends, um, not loving yourself too much and loving your neighbor more. To get to some kind of uh, conver- harmony, mm-hmm. um, he's got another statement here of these two sets of virtues. It's just worth reading. Is on page twenty-five. The amiable, the amiable virtues consist in that degree of sensibility, which surprises by its exquisite and unexpected delicacy and tenderness. The awful and respectable in that degree of self-command, which astonishes by its amazing superiority over the most ungovernable passions of human nature. Yeah, it's a great summary. Now, I think Smith, in one point, I'm pretty sure, he actually makes a male-female distinction and lines these up. I think these are what he's referring to as... You know, the compassionate, amiable is more female, and the uh, the other one, uh, the more respectable. Self-denial, the, self-command, right. less emotional. The integration cetera, yeah. of the self is more more male. But, that would um, be a traditional interpretation for sure, yeah. 18, but, very 18th century. But at the same time, <clears throat> you know, again, the spiral of Smith is saying that we have to be both male and female. Sure. Uh, it's not like he's recommending, of course, one over the other, or even that the, sec- the gender should be different in this in this respect. While we're on page 25, just the very next thing that comes after that yeah. quote you just read is, I think, gets back to the point, at least the way I understood it, you're trying to make between norms and, and – um, Stepping back in utility, he said, he says, there is in this respect a considerable difference between virtue and mere propriety, between those qualities and actions which deserve to be admired and celebrated and those which simply deserve to be approved of. So he's talking about a distinction there between propriety and virtue. Presumably things could be proper and not very virtuous, whereas yeah. it's both that we want. Yeah, and that relates um – to the distinction we referred to earlier between the grammar and the aesthetic mm-hmm. aspirations. Earlier in the previous podcast? In the earlier previous. Yeah. Pre- pre- uh, I see a hint there of him saying that these, vir- what he's calling virtue here, are more these aspirational things of beauty, um, whereas um, the propriety is, okay, you know, they got their grammar right. Um, hmm. 
I don't. See, I didn't see it that way. I saw it more. Propriety is what becomes the norm of society. Okay, and more of a norm. Okay, a mediocrity. Yes, he does speak of that. The you know, point you do of propriety. Yeah, you do what's expected in a society where not much is expected of people. Uh, where people aren't close to one another, then your house burns down. You might get a cake the next day, but they're not going to rebuild your help you rebuild your house. But yeah. we might want a world with more insurance, uh, yeah. something like that. Mm-hmm. Um. Moving along, there, he speaks of decency and indecency. He talks about uh, bodily pleasures. He talks a little bit about sex here. Um, basically, he says um, that, you know, these might be real important to you, but don't expect people to enter into them. <laughs> don't care as much. <laughs> they can never yeah. care as much as you yeah. might care about some of that stuff. And that includes, you know, being feeling pain and all that. Yeah. Um, I'll skip over that. He he briefly makes a distinction between temperance and prudence, yep. which I thought was interesting. Um, temperance being um, more of a social virtue, more of a display matter, um, how you handle uh, your sentiments and uh, interactions, whereas prudence is more like how you look after your future self. Um, he says quite a lot about prudence throughout the book, so we'll come back to that. On On 31... He talks a little bit about the imagination, and there's a little bit about uh, the ridiculous, which I thought uh, deserved comment. He says, the imaginations of mankind, not having acquired that particular turn, cannot enter into them. That is, some, when someone has some special image that they think is real important, um, other people don't you know, see it and cannot enter into them or don't have that much of a commitment or preference for them and such passions then of the of the guy who has this image in his head is very important and such passions though they may be allowed to be almost unavoidable in some part of life are always in some measure ridiculous um and i don't want to make a big deal of this but um there's you know the imagination plays a big role but i think here um there's the suggestion that you can't expect people to rally around something that's only in your imagination um, and that's not well put out in front of people, well-known, tangible, focal. Um, And if you want them to, if you want them to more, and again, this is where I think more about ideology and politics and everything, you've got to get that imagination, that image better shared. You've got to develop it. You've got to teach people to see propriety in it. Um, But... um, Long before doing that, uh, it's, it can just be ridiculous. And in a sense, you know, I think the free society, well, the free society, the whole, you know, sort of ideal of liberalism is often called illusory and ridiculous and a flight of the imagination. You know, libertarians are often accused of all those things. Unrealistic. Right. Living in a fantasy world could never exist, et cetera. Exactly, exactly. Um, and again, I kind of see Smith as very aware of the challenges and trying to draw this image of a free society more concretely so it's less ridiculous. I want to quote Thomas Paine from The Age of Reason. This is... Um, just a couple years after Smith died, one step above the sublime makes the ridiculous, and one step above the ridiculous makes the sublime again. Hmm. So it's like you can get, you know, we have a sense of the beauty, and we might have that loose, vague, and indeterminate sense of aesthetics, which help us all see the beauty in something. And then when, you know, 
the very imaginative, creative person see something beyond that, which no one else can see, he seems ridiculous. But if he can get people on board to see that next level, again, this is like the dialectic, um, it becomes sublime again because we share that sense of that higher beauty. Well, you can see that in art all the time. I think about the Rite of Spring where uh, mm-hmm. you know, Stravinsky That's had to right. escape from the concert hall through a, a bathroom window because they, they were going to kill him. That's right. They were so offended by the piece. And then eventually sensibilities came yeah. to accept that as a, as a masterpiece and an extraordinary. The other thing I think implicit in all this is, and it, he alludes to it a few times, is there's definitely a sense of, um, there's a theory of slapstick humor built into this mm-hmm. book at various places. He talks more than once about that how a person can become a figure of ridicule, or I think he calls it raillery, mm-hmm. uh, which mm-hmm. is uh, you know meaning mockery and laughter, when something that is on the surface tragic is actually, because of the person's reaction to it, uh, becomes a source of humor. And slapstick humor, obviously, is, is, is that phenomenon. Yes, yeah. And the whole... Um, sort of uh, tendency, penchant, I think we have, I have certainly, um, to actually joke about these visionaries, okay? Even the ones that I truly greatly admire. Um, Who are you thinking about? Oh, just, you know, anyone who we consider like great, like Hayek or, or, and you know, Monty Python was great on this, like the great figures and then they would have them sort of, they would also turn it into raillery. Yeah, sure, Um, puncture them. Because there's always the sense of ridiculous in that aspiration. Um, Anyway, going on, I guess. Um, Okay, he talks um, about the unsocial passions, hatred and resentment and other things like that, perhaps indignation. And he explains that um, these are always a little uncomfortable for us, you know, if Jim is hateful or resentful towards somebody. Because, um, well, there's conflict there with Jim and whoever he's resenting, and we have divided sympathy, okay? Yeah. We can't, you know, we can't agree. It's, it can't be one big happy family. It's not a feel-good situation. Well, he, he actually very prominently says resentment's a bummer. You know, it's a downer. You know, people who are sitting around grousing and complaining all the time are no fun to be around. We'd yeah. rather be around happy people and even he says, even when we know the cause of their resentment, we you know we're, we we'd have to be sympathetic to it to at least even consider it an attractive response. There's a lot of stuff in here about resentment. It's rather mm. striking. It forces you to think a lot about how we uh, uh, deal with life's challenges. Because yeah. he's a big he's a big fan of of sucking it up and and moving forward and not <laughs> complaining a lot. Right? He's not Absolutely. into whi- he's not into whining. That's that's true. Um, I should say though that he does think there's a definitely a place for hatred and resentment. Oh, absolutely, and um, violence. You know, yeah, revenge <laughs> yeah. even, sure. uh, which I think is something we should we should remark on. But um, yeah, you know, if Jim is resentful towards somebody, you know, we have to look at the other guy's side of the story. We don't want to, you know, if we just sort of take Jim's side again, we fall into being partial. Yeah. Um, and so, since there's conflict between Jim and the other guy, unlike gratitude. Um, it's more difficult for us, and it's it's less pleasant. It's more challenging for us to enter into, um, and so it's and he calls it an unsocial passion. Yeah. You know, it's not feel good. 
right? <laughs> and in politics, we have, you know, feel-good politics, right? That's where everything can be smooth and swimming together. No and trade-offs. No, no trade-offs. We're not going to punish the criminals. We're going to correct them, yeah. right? We're going to get everybody back together. Um, and so I do think that politics... Um, Although sometimes, you know, when they're up, when it's up against us versus them in the heat of the election and the negative campaigning, uh, you know, there is a real us versus them, and it's time for the unsocial passions. But um, when the when a party is in power and trying to make policy and put it over on society, it's very feel good, yeah, usually. Always. Yeah. When you're talking about us versus them, you didn't mean from your own perspective. You meant from the politicians' perspective. Yeah, or just you know, Republicans <laughs> versus Democrats. Yeah, partisanship. You know, yeah, partisanship. Right. Um, and but we have to learn how to resent then in a dignified way, and to do that gracefully, uh, realizing that um, that showing a lot of resentment or hatred can be um, upsetting to you know our company, and also that sort of the, our company might also feel it's rude on our part because of other people in attendance who are also being inconvenienced by this undue resentment. Uh, so it's something we, ner- we we definitely ner- need to learn to control and stuff. But at the same time, um, he definitely feels it's something which can be done in a dignified way and clearly should be. Um, he's got this important footnote, uh, which comes, I think, later. Um, I think it's in section one. Um, I think it is. That long footnote? Yeah. yeah very the, long is footnote. it the very end of section one? I'm flipping here. It is. It's on 76, 77, and 78. And this is important, I guess. Is that in the first edition, do you know? I, I, I assume that was uh, – he'd been criticized, and he added that after the fact. I don't know, but uh, – You know, I was wondering that as well because it's this extremely long footnote set off in smaller type here. Somewhat on, defensive, too, I felt. Yeah. On the other hand, I do not see any editorial indications that – you know, by the editors that uh, – it's anything but original. Okay. Um, I could be just missing them somehow. But um, there's a lot in this footnote, but, but on this part of it anyway, um, he's, saying, he's saying that a lot of people um, take a – sorry. Sorry. I, I think this footnote is actually in part two, but, but in my version. Oh, you're right. It is in but, part But you can go ahead. We can, ta- we can talk about it in part one if you think it's relevant for what we're talking about. Um. Or do you want to just... Yeah, why don't I just finish the thought here? Yeah. Um, he's. I think this is actually a really important footnote for, for a couple of reasons. I'll just touch the one. Um, um, he's saying that many people take a kind of teetotaler approach to resentment and hatred. Kind of like those are, you know, hate crime, like those you should never do and you should never express them. You should never express indignation. Um, and I think he's saying, you know, this is the problem of the teetotaler is that they're throwing it all away and not – like a teetotaler, they're never drinking because they're afraid they can't manage a moderate and responsible and proper amount of drink, okay? In other words, that they can't manage the judgment properly, and so they're like abstaining entirely. Because they which might it, become a raving, hateful maniac, so yes. better to just turn that off. That's right, something to that effect. But at the same time, it's real clear in his system – that it's real important that you express these unsocial passions because that's an important part of informing people about their reactions to on you and their real um, you know effects on your feelings and sentiments. 
we have to, you know, check all those different sources of moral approval. And if the people affected are affected negatively and resent it and are not expressing it, um, that's something lost, right? And if people become too blasé about outrages and injustices, then we we become complacent, right? We become docile in the face of outrages and injustices, which I think is a huge problem in academia, okay? And this is a whole part of that whole got to be positive and not normative type thing. In a sense, that's that's often just... Economist is scientist rather than preacher. Yeah, right. Um, Don't be an advocate. Don't be outspoken. One of the readings of don't be normative is don't be outspoken, which, you know, being outspoken often expresses a sort of judgment Maybe a sense of resentment or, you know, um, but um, if you don't, if someone, if nobody's doing that, it kind of becomes blasé and it becomes easier for these things to persist and spread. So um, he's saying, no, you don't have to be a teetotaler. In fact, you know, I don't think he would be a teetotaler. I don't know if he drank, but. um, (laughs) No, but there's a strong uh, Aristotelian uh, emphasis on moderation. Yeah. Throughout the book. Absolutely. That that you want to be. In between the extremes that either that you feel and therefore you should moderate them because of who, how you'll be perceived or the extremes of how you act in response to an injustice or, or react to an injustice or, 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 or a good deed. Yeah. So there's a, to me, there's a very much uh, – uh, you know, in the Jewish tradition I associated with Maimonides, an emphasis a, – a moral behavior is, is a question of moderation, that to go to extremes in either direction is unhealthy, even things that are good because they're going to lead to, uh-huh. to, to, to the wrong thing. So an alcoholic is bad and so is a teetotaler. The, the goal of life is to find a responsible way to drink. Uh, and similarly, when, when an injustice is done, you don't, you don't kill a person for jaywalking and you don't – and he explicitly has that example. You don't, you don't give somebody the death penalty for having a bad motive. Uh, and doing something that, through no fault of their own, leads to, to a bad thing, and similarly, you don't say, "Well, you know, who, how can you blame anyone?" So, to me, he's very much in that tradition of of moderation. Yeah, judgment is a heady thing; can be a heady yeah. thing, and uh, people may not be able to judge responsibly, and a lot of people then advocate advocate or you know not judging at all, as right. it were. George Stigler, in a way, I think, can be interpreted that way. It's like he couldn't judge responsibly the way Hayek and Friedman could. He was a whimsical, capricious guy. I think it's obvious. He couldn't judge responsibly, so he sort of damned judging entirely. Interesting, yeah. Um, I don't know if that's fair to him, but that's an interesting yeah. interpretation. I'm sort of in the Deirdre clamp. I know camp, you are, Deirdre yeah. McCloskey camp on Stigler. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm more sympathetic to him because personal connection, but maybe yeah, I'm biased, of, too. Um <laughs> Then on the social passions, the sympathy is undivided. I mean, gratitude is a social passion where, you know, you can kind of smile on both and everybody's like one big happy party, you know, feel good thing. What do you mean smile on both? Uh, well, Jim is, feels gratitude towards Rick. So they're both happy, you know, they're not at odds. Mm-hmm. You know, Rick was good to Jim. Jim is grateful to Rick. And it's like one big happy love fest. Okay. So it's like a social passion. Um, Okay. Okay, he talks a bit he talks at length uh, some length about grief and joy. I think I'll just skip those. Um these are very he suggests sort of very personal um sentiments and um 
He says you shouldn't expect people to really be able to enter into them too much. He says, Fact, he says if you're too joyous about your financial success, they'll hate your guts. That's right. And so you should pretend that it's no big deal. And he talks about how hard it is to do that. It's very interesting. Right. And he also says something uh, very interesting um, that prosperity, good things, actually never really lift us very high above our normal state of contentment or happiness, whereas very bad things can really devastate us. And so... um, Of course, he never had an iPod. So it's an interesting (laughs) thing. You know, in his world, it was a prosperity outside of of the upper classes was probably a very narrow range. There wasn't much to lift people up above much. Yeah. Right? But I think it's true today, too. I mean, if I I won the lottery... You know, I don't think I'd be that much happier tomorrow. No, no, this, <laughs> this gets into the ha- – I, I was struck a couple times that, that a lot of this relo- relates to the issues that are in the so-called happiness literature and today. And behavioral yeah, economics. for sure. Um, but anyway, because of these differences in ups and downs, um, people can never – someone who wanted to try to sympathize with someone in real serious grief would have a lot farther to go than somebody who's in prosperity and, and joy, because joy by nature is never that much. And so, if, and if somebody is, 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 is in prosperity and expects people to be really elated for them, we really don't get into that because we don't even believe he's that elated. Yeah. So Smith has the notion that losses loom larger than gains. Yeah, okay. very, uh, uh, very relevant for modern economics. Yeah, very Thaler uh, and Not so just on. Thaler. Diminishing marginal utility. Uh, oh, there's that too, but it's more than that. It's it's. I think it's clearly in the Thaler, Kahneman behavioral correct fla- flavor. Willingness to pay is not the same as willingness to accept of the same amount. Absolutely, yeah. there's a great deal in Smith that is being echoed today in behavioral economics. There's that. There's that the process matters. He says that these points of propriety and gracefulness are often more important than the actual good little services you get in commerce or whatever it is. Um, There's just, there's the process matters. There's just a great number of things that, you know, now are being discussed in behavioral economics. A couple of years ago, there was an article in the Journal of Economic Perspectives about Adam Smith as a behavioral economist. It was an extremely interesting article to me in this way. I mean, it was a good article. It was a nice article. I don't mean to knock it, but to some extent, it read as, hey, look how great Smith was. He actually had the foresight to see some of the things we've now discovered, that behavioral, that behavioral sciences now, you know, in the early 21st century, actually, you know, brought to light in a scientific way. And my reading of the paper was like, doesn't this show how off track economics got. It's like Smith was talking about human beings not as mathematical functions, but as human beings. He had it all, you know, not all there, but you know, he was doing he had a it. rich picture of human behavior. Yeah, he had a human picture of human behavior. And then later on, I don't know when you want to say it started, but 1948, co- roughly. Well, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's a notable year, but um, economists started thinking of the human being as a mathematical function. And that became a kind of shibboleth and cliche. Then I got attacked and blah, 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 even though in some sense economists, a lot of economists never were saying that in the first place. Um, 
And then we had the so-called behavioral movement to correct this, this, you know, to advance science. But it's like coming back to, yeah. to Adam Smith, uh, like, you know, like they went off on the wrong track. And now we're, geez, great. Now we're back to 1759 and <laughs> let's get back on the main road. Um, anyway, it's an interesting article. And, and in a way, I think the authors of the article had that other reading in mind. So it's, it, it wasn't clearly one way or the other. I didn't mean to fault the article. It's a great article, actually. Um, anyway, we're coming into, uh, Russ, um, this matter of um, ambition and pursuing rank and distinction. And this, to me, was the most entertaining uh, and fascinating part of part one. It was yeah, really the most political as well. Um, and one thing he says, again, is that it's not... It, that it's the vanity that drives people towards this rank and distinction. It's not so much the notion that uh, the greater wealth is going to make life that much more materially pleasurable. Um, he says it's not the ease or the pleasure which interests us, uh, but, the, but the vanity, the belief of our being the object of attention um, and approbation, um, you know, wanting attention essentially. So you go into rock music. Not to be rich, but to be loved. You go into Hollywood to be yeah. loved, not to be rich. You go into politics to be loved and not to be yeah. rich. Of course, you get rich too. I think some of that but, is a little unfair to the rock stars and so on. But um, right, because they're exp- they're expressing themselves, right? Right. They're they're expressing a deep creative part, but the um, very few of them can escape the pursuit of glamour as part of the enterprise. Because partly, you could argue, because they understand that the more glamorous they are perceived, the more more wealth they'll command, right? So it it does interact in a very interesting way. But when I think of Hollywood, uh, very, very few people come to mind who uh, sort of are willing to uh, be humble, and not be on the cover of, of every magazine constantly. Tom Hanks is someone, we have that impression that he's just a normal guy. Of course, that's part of his shtick, too. But but we have that. And in, and in sports, we have the occasional athlete, uh, Albert Pujols, who's the star of the St. Louis Cardinals. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend saying he, he's the best player, in, he's the best hitter in the National League, maybe the best player in baseball. Why isn't he more appreciated? Well, he's quiet. He he's got a family. He doesn't seek the mm-hmm. limelight. And uh, most of them do. That's mm-hmm. part of the game for whatever yeah. reason. Yeah. Um, definitely all this question of celebrity uh, is being discussed here. I do think that um, he does focus to a good extent on sort of political eminence and politics. And this is – he does kind of get political here. Tremendous. Um, <laughs> and he says that uh, the, the disposition of mankind is to go along with all the passions of the rich and powerful – and he talks about basically being star people being starstruck yeah. on being obsequious uh, to these people, not as he says very clearly, not necessarily out of any expectation of a favor or gain, but just they want to rub shoulders, they want to coordinate sentiment with you know the powerful, uh, and it's as simple as that. You know they want to rub shoulders with with uh, the big bosses. Um, big shots, not so much the big boss. It's interesting. I, I, I think it's obviously a deeply true fact of human nature. It's extremely difficult to maintain one maintain one's judgment and balance in the presence of those folks, uh, yeah. rich and powerful people. I think so too. Um, and they know it, and they know how to play it. <laughs> yeah. well, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, and so he, t- he he does sort of have exhortations here about don't go into politics or. 
you know, don't expect it to lead to happiness. Um, and he speaks of two roads um, yeah, that's toward um, being respectable as well as being respected. Um, one is through wisdom and pursuit of wisdom and virtue, and the other is towards wealth and greatness. And I think he does have a very political notion of greatness here when he speaks of greatness. Um, and the one type of character who pursues wealth and greatness is proud ambition and ostentatious avidity, uh, whereas the one who pursues wisdom and virtue is uh, of humble modesty and equitable justice. He says the mob mostly admires the, the great uh, and the ostentatious ones. Um, and then he speaks of different, uh, how these pan out or play out, I should say, for people in different stations in life and of the middling and inferior stations, he's rather optimistic that it's actually um, through industry, honest dealings, virtue, actually, uh, du commerce, to use you know the expression I think originally from uh, Montesquieu, that commerce actually, that, that, that commerce rewards virtue. And Smith, of course, wrote about this or lectured about it in the jurisprudence where he said that punctuality and probity are the chief virtues of a commercial society because of reputational mechanisms and so on. And there's also stuff in The Wealth of Nations certainly along these lines. So he's got a rather optimistic view about virtue for the middling and inferior stations. And he, I think, he, he, and by that he just means people who aren't in the upper class, right? Yes, I think that's right. Um, Whereas for people in the upper class, um, he says that um, these are very diverging roads, that, that if, you, if you want to pursue greatness, you've got to not pursue virtue, essentially, and do all sorts of stuff that, um, you know, way outside the bounds of propriety and, and true fairness or wisdom and, and so on. He basically paints a very, a very negative picture of, of political life and getting on in political life. And nobility. The, upper, mm -hmm. the so-called upper classes of, of, of his day. Yes. I couldn't help but be struck by how um, that might be a personal comment. You know, he said, you've got two paths. One path is, is, is celebrity and the other is, is honest toil and virtue and wisdom. And I think he chose the latter and it was sweet for him because he ended up with the former as well after his at least after his death, right? How many noble upper class people of 1759 do we still talk about? Two or three, maybe. No. Uh, how many? And Adam Smith is still discussed. So it's kind of ironic, but I felt there was a little bit of a chip on his shoulder, a little bit of, if I may use the word, it's, I, I hesitate, but resentment that that's the way the world is. A little bit of defensiveness that, you know, there's two paths here. Uh, one of them's despicable, the other is noble, and I guess which one I chose. I don't know. It's just the feeling I got when I read That's it. That's interesting. I'm not. <laughs> you may be. You may be right. Um, Humble. You yeah. know. <laughs> the thing is with Smith is um, he's extra extraordinary in um, the cultural place that he actually had in his day. I mean, he he really enjoyed a position of sort of cultural royalty. Even in his day, uh, you know, I do think that po statesmen and po politicians did come very much to solicit his, uh -huh. you know, assistance and all that, and pay great attention to what he had to say. Um, but he wasn't we, just a humble professor toiling in a garret on a masterpiece. He wasn't just that yeah. by any means, <laughs> and 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 culturally, he was the center, I think, and the jewel of his peers. 
okay, the sort of Scottish moral philosophers, um, or at least came to be, um, particularly after the publication of this book, um, and onward. And that group of moral philosophers, moreover, were like a mountain peak in European culture generally. So you kind of have Smith as this king, this cultural king in a way, um, which is a very remarkable matter and I think is very significant in understanding how he writes and the constraints on what he does. Um, he's, you know, he's not some side character um, figuring I'll get in, you know, my remarks uh, as I can while I have a few listeners. He, he's sort of very aware. In fact, he's cultivating, I think, this position of cultural royalty. And to do that, you, I think you have to hedge what you say a lot. You have to cloak what you say a lot. I actually, viewer, listeners should know that I, I am definitely partial <laughs> to, to having a sort of a, a more libertarian reading of Smith than, than most Smith readers. Um, so I could I'm be... Trying to check you from time to time, even though yeah, I'd like that to be true, Dan. I'm, um, I'm, I should be checked in this. I could be out of bounds <laughs> on this. But I actually tend to think that Smith actually was even more in favor of the liberty principle than he let on. And partly for these reasons of cultural royalty. That's so. I stand corrected. It's not like he was. It, he, he. The reason I mention it is he keeps talking about the sacrifice that's involved, the seeming sacrifice that if you pursue this this celebrity status, this yeah. upper class nobility status, that you're going to pay a heavy price for it. And I, I just wondered if perhaps there was a little bit of – I think that's a terribly – I think you're right. The more I think about it, because you know, I say he's sort of the apex of a kind of cultural mountain peak in some sense of all of, all of civilized – Western civilization that culture time. at that time. Yeah. But then again, you know – Culture and the arts and philosophy are not the only mountain peak, right? So there's another mountain there across the vista of politics and the kings. And in a sense, maybe you're absolutely right. He's sort of sort of saying that I'm the top of this mountain peak. That mountain peak may even look taller and more awesome. Which is but, ridiculous. But they're yeah, <laughs> they're, it is ridiculous. They're they're not virtuous. They've gotten there, and it's it has selected people based on not being um, honest and wise and yeah. wise and so on. But what, what struck me about it, the only thing, other, only other point I want to make about it, and then we ought to think about wrapping up. The only other point I want, yeah, the only other point I want to make is what fascinated me about first of all the way he writes about it, it's highly entertaining and it's a great section to read. But the it's not enough to say these people are charlatans and emotionally juvenile because their they're, they're satisfaction – let me say it differently. He doesn't see any tension between these two views, which, which, which I hadn't thought about until this conversation. One is – he says there's a whole class of people who get all their pleasure from being adored and loved. But he fundamentally said that's what we are. That's what we are as humans. That's where we get our satisfaction is striding through life uh, being respected. And he's saying – the way I took this section to read is, is two things. One is, well, some people are respected for reasons that really aren't terribly meaningful. Then there are those who are respected for good reasons, and those are the people who are wise and virtuous. These people who are rich and powerful, they're respected. They are adored and adulated and get all this attention uh, and commanded, and, and yet there's something not real there. So that's the first thing I was struck by. The second thing is <laughs> – I love this – 
You know, he says, if you're in that, that group that, that is rich and powerful and you're getting all this love and affection and you fall from grace, it's over for you. Your life is ruined. You will never be happy again. Mm-hmm. The, the, I think about this all the time when I think of, of uh, you know, the um, – it's in Evita, the, the musical, uh, High Flying Adored. Where you know she's this at the at the peak of her life at a very young age, and of course this is true of a lot of these people we're talking about, athletes and 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 entertainers, mm-hmm. uh, and of course modern technology has allowed people and, and the baby boom generation has allowed all these people to sustain that over a much longer time than ever before. But you know it never gets any better than that when they're when they're twenty seven and twenty eight for some of these folks, and he's really saying it's a curse. Uh, you know, to be to be standing in front of a crowd, uh, reaching out to you. Know, just my favorite example of this is um, is Marilyn Monroe. Supposedly, I think it's probably a true story. She's married to Joe DiMaggio, and she comes back from her USO tour, and I think. Um, World War II or probably Korea, maybe. And she says, you know, the, the way these people treated me, the love and the applause and the affection, he says, you can't imagine it. And he says, oh, yes, I can. Because he had strode through center field in Yankee Stadium and had 70,000 voices ch- chanting his name. I mean, it's that is such a seductive drug. And yet, once you can't have it, there's no substitute. Mm-hmm. And I think he says that extremely powerfully and whether it was out of whatever the motives were, I think it's a deep truth about human beings that once you've reached that pinnacle, your ability to find a substitute source of happiness is not just oh, you're, you're never going to be as happy as you were when you were when you were adulated like that. It's you're never going to be happy again. Mm-hmm. Now, in our time, Joe DiMaggio got to sign autographs and do uh, Mr. Coffee ads and, and all kinds of things that got him that kept him in the public eye. But for somebody who falls from the public eye, a politician, a rock star, an entertainer, as he's talking about, I think he's right. It's it's an oblivion that must be unbearable. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, and it kind of relates, I think, to his egalitarianism where um, I think he's got an egalitarianism in that he sees all humans as aspiring and rich and wonderful and you know capable and potential of – have all this potentiality. Um, and he speaks of the rich and the powerful as despising the poor and the mean. And they develop um, all these attitudes in those very high walks of life, um, which actually kind of necessitate that probably to a great extent. Um, and, you know, they are being sucked up as sort of the king and the alpha male or whatever. And um, they they lose the, their notions of propriety with respect to ordinary people in ordinary life. So then when they fall, they don't know how to go back into that in a way that's satisfying for them. It the just world of equals. There's no yeah, more equals Yeah, the world anymore. of equals, exactly. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to – there's a bit more if we have a – Yeah, five more minutes. Um, so back in where he's saying in the middling and inferior stations of life, virtue actually works. Honesty is the best policy, a kind of do commerce. Not that – I'm not sure that he mentions commerce in this paragraph, but uh, clearly he says that when you say When you say do commerce, you're, you're speaking French. Yeah. Sweet, sweet dealings. That's right. Sweet commerce. Sweet business interactions. That's right. Mont- Montesquieu said that commerce softens morals and customs and habits and practices. Um and it fits in with, like I said about Smith, 
seeing it ushering in punctuality and probity, you know, basically honesty. So he says here that honesty is the best policy holds in such situations almost perfectly true. This is again in the middling and inferior stations of life. In such situations, therefore, we may generally expect a considerable degree of virtue, sort of in the ordinary people. And fortunately for the good morals of society, these are the situations of by far the greater part of mankind. <laughs> okay, let me just say a little bit more about the next sentence. It's a new paragraph and come back to that. So he then draws the contrast. In the superior stations of life, the case is unhappily not always the same. In the courts of the princes, in the drawing rooms of the great, where success and preferment depend, not upon the esteem of intelligent and well-informed equals, but upon the fanciful and foolish favor of ignorant, presumptuous, and proud superiors. Flattery and falsehood too often prevail over merit and abilities." Now, it's so, I think it's so interesting that he says in the first part, uh, the good part, fortunately, um, that for the good morals of society, these are the situations of by far the greater part of mankind. This fits into what I said about why I think in a way this book, though it's a part mainly about equals, is actually a political book. I mean, in other parts, it's explicitly political, but in some very broad sense, the whole thing is political because I think he's saying – as much as society as we can should be like that. Yeah. I, I you know, he says, fortunately reading. for the good morals of society. So the more that society is not governmentalized, right, and not dependent upon all the things that the way government works and government, you know, um, the more that we will have virtue being the natural course towards happiness and improvement and advancement. Well, it seems to me saying that for the bulk of the people – those of us in the middling and inferior stations, uh, the rules of the game induce good behavior. In the upper classes, the rules of the game uh, encourage malfeasance uh, and destructive behavior. But even specifically Flattery says the princes and, and the yeah, courts, it sounds even more political than just upper classes. Yeah, well, that's what I, yeah, in his know, world, that's who he's referring that's to. That's true, I suppose. But regardless of whether how you want to read his motivation, um, it, it definitely – is consistent with the public choice view of the dysfunctionality of the political incentives that are yeah. that, that 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 it talks about. That you know that this is not a uh, a well functioning uh, set of incentives for to attract high quality people who will serve their so called political customers, yeah. the citizens. Yeah, and and it'll attract and select for people who are sort of weak in virtue, maybe even bad in virtue. I think of Hayek's Why the Worst Get on Top. Mm-hmm. And then those are the people who set fashion, which um, we didn't mention, but they, <laughs> yeah, they're the ones awesome. who set fashion. And so then they have this you know deleterious influence on everyone else as well. So again, I, I do think this book – very much leans again towards uh, degovernmentalization of society. Make it as civ- as much civil society only, or depoliticize as much as you can. Well, to push against your libertarian impulse uh, again, you could certainly read it as an indictment of the culture of celebrity and how celebrities literally set fashion uh, and set morals and mores and norms. And I suspect he didn't think much of that. Wouldn't wouldn't think much of that either in our time, when he's thinking, looking at uh, at um, 
oh, I don't know, The Apprentice, a show I've never seen, but it's evidently about uh-huh. uh, Donald Trump who, because of his wealth and uh-huh. character and personas, can, is considered somebody we should try to emulate. And uh, yeah, and, it, and millions of people watch that show and want to be his, you know, his apprentice, which is a bizarre thing. Yeah, <laughs> it's possible, and that might be what he meant by the shocking enormities uh, gross distortions and shocking enormities from the superior paragraph we read last time. No, I don't think so. I think that was about politics. I'm with you there. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm just talking about the fashion part. Yeah, both literal. I think he'd probably uh, not be enthusiastic, not be a fan, but sort of see it as well. This is harmless compared to, you know, other bad things people could be doing. Perhaps could be. I don't know. <laughs> Um, he does have in the Wealth of Nations saying that one way to divert the public and keep them from becoming fanatics in their own little sect is for the government to allow, just laissez-faire, shows, operas, buffoonery, you know, uh, lampoons. World, World Wrestling Federation. World Wrestling Federation or whatever. <laughs> yeah. uh, he he actually, I think, league. picked up on them sat- satirizing the rich and the great. Um, but he was certainly smiling on that there. Yeah, okay, fair enough. <laughs> um, I hope those of you out there got something out of this. This was our first podcast on the details of the book, our second podcast overall. Our next episode will cover part two, maybe part three. Go to the book club page and uh, follow the schedule there, and I hope you're enjoying it. And feedback always welcome and please join us and thank you dan for this uh second podcast on the theory of moral sentiments my pleasure this is econ talk part of the library of economics and liberty for more econ talk go to econtalk.org where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation the sound engineer for econ talk is rich goyette I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.